fire Who by water Who in the sunshine Who in the nighttime Who by high ordeal Who by common trial Who in your merry, merry month of May Who by very slow decay And who shall I say And welcome to the Thinking God Podcast, where we hope to mine hope from the dark corners and the bright windows of the world. Today my guest is Amy Jill Levine. She is University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies and the Mary Jane Wortham Professor of Jewish Studies and a Professor of New Testament Studies at Vanderbilt Divinity School. She has a BA from Smith College, an MA, and a PhD from Duke University. And she's the author of more than a dozen books, including The Difficult Words of Jesus, Short Stories from Jesus, and The Bible Without Jesus. And her books, though decidedly not written from a Christian perspective, are used in Christian churches across the country to help uncover Jewish perspectives on scriptures from the lens of a scholar. Uh, she was born and raised a fifth generation daughter of Massachusetts, and her name is not a nod to the South, which I was joking with her about, but a pairing of her paternal grandmother, Amelia, Amy, and a feminine version of her fraternal grandfather, Jacob, who was known as Jack, from which she got Jill, so Amy Jill. She is a passionate speaker, and from our conversation, I am betting she is a compelling classroom teacher, and we had a fine conversation. I just wanted, uh, we'll just jump right in. I wanted to start uh, just talking about your spiritual path. What, what are some of your earliest memories of your spiritual experiences? I'm not a particularly spiritual person. Um, a friend once described me as I'm religious but not spiritual. Um, I have, I, I don't remember never attending uh, worship. I, I remember being a little child in synagogue and, and liking the songs that people were singing, um, liking getting dressed up to go to services uh, very early on going to Hebrew school and Sunday school. Um, I appreciate ritual. I appreciate community. Um, I appreciate uh, liturgical music, especially in Hebrew. So those are my earliest memories, and, and those appreciations have remained with me. If you can, sort of delineate the difference between, I mean, is there not a spiritual connection to the religious experience? And I'm, I'm trying to put those together here. You're saying you're religious but not spiritual. I mean, uh, isn't there a spiritual connection within all that, or am I overstepping um, there? It, there may be. It depends upon how you define spiritual. Um, today I'm hearing so many people saying I'm spiritual but not religious, which means they don't go to church, they don't go to mosque, they don't go to synagogue, and they're basically inventing their own religion. Right. Um, and they can you know, walk out in the woods and experience some sort of transcendent presence which gives them peace and inspiration. And that's all to the good. Uh, and what I want to do is focus on the other part. I want to focus on community because I, I find the idea of having some sort of spiritual connection with something that's transcendent but not having a connection uh, with the people who are around us, uh, to be strange. Uh, the biblical tradition is a communal tradition. Uh, the Jewish tradition, there are certain prayers that you cannot say unless you've got a quorum of 10 people. Jesus talks about where two or three are gathered in his name, and he says, when you pray, pray our Father, not my Father. So I'm, I'm looking for that communal concern. I'm looking for ritual, which keeps people um, grounded. I find it to be extremely helpful. I'm looking at recovering the prayers of the past rather than let's invent everything new uh, and put it up on a PowerPoint. And, and so you grew up in, in a largely Jewish community in the Northeast, is that right? 
Oh, I grew up in a largely Roman Catholic community in the oh, North. Okay. So, but you, so you went to Roman Catholic schools, but you also went to synagogue. Is that right? Um, I went to church with my friends. I went to public school. Okay. Um, so I'm a proud graduate of, of you know, K through 12 public education. Um, but uh, I went to church with my friends whenever I could, and I went to church school with them, which was after regular school. So you get out of school at three, and then you go to church school from three to five. And in the next town over, I went to Hebrew school on the alternate days from three to five. <laughs> so getting a second opinion is... <laughs> well, it wasn't even so much a second opinion, um, because we weren't asking the same questions. Um, we were hearing different stories and learning about different traditions. Um, and I found myself really quite at home in listening to the stories that my Catholic friends were learning, because most of the stories in the Gospels are based on stories in the earlier scriptures. But you were not, I mean, it wasn't like there was a group of you that went to both the, the Christian school and, and the Hebrew school, right? It was yeah, just you. I, I think I was the only one. Right, I was going to say. Did, did you get any pushback from any prejudice or anything because of that? or Never. I mean, remarkably. Wow. Never. And, and I think the reason I'm so at home in working in the New Testament, which is my primary field of research, teaching New Testament, uh, and working with church groups across the Christian spectrum, is because when I was a child, I was so well treated by Christian teachers. Well, that's interesting. So when you decided that, to choose your, your academic field, that's, that was the influence for the New Testament? Um, pretty much so. Uh, the, the impetus for all this, why I started going to church school in the first place, was because when I was in second grade, a little little girl on the school bus accused me of having killed God <laughs> because I was the only Jew on the bus, and it must have been me. Uh, and that's what she had heard from her priest. And this is this is before Vatican II had ended, so mm -hmm. before Vatican II kind of changed the tide in Catholic religious education. Wow, yeah, that that still runs. You know, the deeper south you get, the more you still hear some of that that oddness. Um, I live in Tennessee. I understand. That. Yeah. Well, at least at least Nashville is. I mean, for the South is somewhat progressive now, because I mean it's it's not as. I, I tell people that get down to South Carolina and the the hills and the old country here. It's it's deep fried Southern Baptist. It's not just Southern Baptist. It's uh, it's. Uh, I believe the expression is not deep fried. The expression should be deep water. <laughs> well, yeah, they they'll hold gender, but they're they're uh, they're also going to have after they do that, they're they're going to give you something fried to, to celebrate. So it's uh, I guess it's all hooked in together. Um, um I, I on the other hand, I, I don't want to bash Southern Baptists and I don't want to bash evangelicals. You know, when something bad happens, if there's a hurricane or a fire, they're usually first on the line to be there to help people. Um, and what I find when I work with more conservative Christian groups is um, a lot of times they don't quite realize uh, how problematic some of their statements are. Um, and when I tell them, you know, if, if you, for example, believe that the reason you should believe in God is because you're afraid of going to hell, um, then you're turning God into a bully and a sadist and a bad parent. Um, right, and right. God is a loving parent who doesn't desire that for anybody. So to try to change some of the, the more guilt-inducing and shame-inducing teachings, uh, because I don't think they're entirely consistent with the biblical message. I'm going to get back to that, because I was raised in the, the you know, late 50s, 60s churches of the, the God is a abusive father kind of thing. We'll get back to that in a minute. But I wanted to kind of get uh, some definitions up, up front as we go into this. When the average American Christian talks about an approach to scriptures, uh, what does that mean, and how does that differ from that of an Orthodox Jewish person? Yeah, well, I can't answer your question. 
because the average American Episcopalian is going to approach something in a different way than the average American Presbyterian Church USA. Or evangelical, um, or, yeah. Yeah, or depending upon, you know, where you're going to be when the Methodists split. Right. Um, I, I am a member of an Orthodox synagogue. I am not Orthodox in practice. Uh, but what I can tell you is that when I come into the synagogue and I have a Bible discussion with other people in the synagogue, I expect a really good discussion with lots of different opinions rather than let's look for the one bright reading. Um, there's a there's a rabbinic idea that you know you ask uh, you ask for another reading and another reading. Um, there's a saying Shiva Panim La Torah that the Torah has 70 faces. So every verse that you take, you like you can turn it like you turn a faceted gem and it hits the light differently whenever you whenever you just move it slightly. So you can see multiple things in the same text. And the point of Jewish biblical interpretation um, is to share what you think and add to that communal repository rather than to look for the one right answer. And I understand, to be fair, that when you say Christian, you're, you are talking about Episcopalians and independent Baptists. I mean, that is a very broad brushstroke. But let's just talk about the a, a over, overarching um, Christian view of the Old Testament and what... Uh, may not be taking it into a multifaceted approach. What, what do you think is missed uh, when, when many Christians approach the Old Testament? I don't think many Christians approach the Old Testament. That's the first problem. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> if the church is on the lectionary, typically it will be the gospel reading or, or the reading from Paul that gets preached rather than the Old Testament reading. Uh, Christians will generally look at the Old Testament as pointing toward Jesus, and if you read the New Testament, it certainly looks like it does. Uh, because the followers of Jesus, the only Bible they had was what eventually became the Christian Old Testament. Um, so they were looking for connections between their new experience of the risen Christ and, and what their what their experience of Scripture was. So, of course, they make connections. Um, I think it's helpful, uh, and I've advised my Christian students this, if they're preaching, um, you know, go to the Old Testament. If they can't come up with anything, go see what the Jews have said, because it's not like we haven't made a couple of comments over the past 2,000 years. Uh, and <laughs> and the kept, mass, kept pretty good records of that as well, we actually. Record of it. And the mass majority of Jewish interpretations Christians can use. Right? In other words, they can double dip. They can see the text as pointing to Jesus, and they can see it as pointing to something else. But it, it seems odd, though, that they've been able to figure—I mean, you've got the, the best stories— um, and they take Job and Jonah and, and figure out somehow that has something to do with Jesus. I, 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 that's conf confusing to me. It's not confusing to me at all. Um, if you read the text with Christian lenses, you should be able to see Jesus on every page. And it's not like looking for Weir's Waldo, you know, like, oh, it says Jesus of Nazareth somewhere here in you know, the middle of Isaiah 53. Uh, but you can see the connections because the writers of the New Testament made those connections for you. And if they didn't, then the early church fathers did, and then Luther did, and then Calvin did, and then Wesley did, and Stone Campbell did, and so on. Um, so it makes sense to be able to see this as, as predicting Jesus. Uh, but to limit it to that, I think, is, is, I think is a disservice to the text. I think it does more than that. Um, it, today, for example, if you just look at Suffering Servant and you think about, you can think about Jesus, of course, uh, but you can also think about other people whose suffering calls calls people to account. So you look at pictures now coming out of Ukraine, um, this family that was killed trying to cross a bridge, and, and the horror of what's happening just strikes you. Or you look at people who were killed because uh, of a mistaken police raid into a house and say, wait, wait a minute, maybe we have to reconsider this. The suffering servant speaks very, very loudly here. And yet, in, in the tradition that I was raised in, again, we're talking about old school Southern Baptist tradition, which I, that's not really where I am today, but that's where I was raised, is um, 
and at least again in my experience, it's fostered an awful lot of anti-Semitism and um, got, found some very disturbing results. I mean, you can go back to, to the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, was founded splitting over supporting slavery, mm-hmm. and they were using scriptures to do that. And I'm not sure many of them realize they haven't moved as far away from that as they think. Um, I. That is certainly the case, although I don't want to burden contemporary generations with the sins of the past. I mean, people are trying to do the best they can, given new realizations. The problem is, at least when it comes to anti-Jewish interpretation, it's so hardwired uh, into the tradition, and there are parts of the book, the New Testament itself, that could lead you there, that you really have to make a conscious effort to deal with it in the same way that if you're part of the majority, you have to make a conscious effort to, to say, well, what am I doing that might be oppressive? to people who are not part of the majority. And that's always going to be the case. Well, it's interesting to me that there, there are Christian churches, um, they're having Bible studies and stuff and um, using your materials, and yet uh, many of them would not use materials from anyone else that wasn't expressively Christian. Um, I imagine you faced some interesting reactions when it was announced you were going to teach New Testament at Vanderbilt. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. In fact, when I got the job... Um, and this, I would be the, I think, the first Jew to be hired as a permanent member of the Divinity School faculty, as opposed to being in the Department of Religion and getting borrowed to teach courses. Um, the the dean at the time got got pushback both from Christians, who were convinced that I was somehow going to lead the poor Divinity students into some sort of heresy, and from the Jewish community because they thought I was a Messianic Jew. Um, and thought I would be out trying to evangelize Jews on the weekend, you know, saying, you know, I've got good news of Jesus that I need to tell you so you can come get baptized. Um, so the dean, who is a very wise man named Joe Huff, um, held a reception when I moved to Nashville, where I'm, you know, getting hate mail from people. Um, and he invited the various people who had complained and, and some people who were interested and said, talk to them and tell them what you do for about 15 minutes. And after that, very, very little problem. Um, uh, in a number of cases, I've had more conservative students come to me uh, because I because they know I take their concerns seriously. Um, I don't dismiss uh, claims of resurrection. I don't dismiss the idea of miracle. I take very seriously that, you know, Matthew thought Jesus was raised from the dead, and therefore that's how you have to understand what Matthew is talking about. Um, so um, they can get more hearing from me than they can get from some more liberal professors to say, oh, that stuff's just nonsense and superstition. Well, that was, that was next. I was going to ask about your students. Is there a common set of questions you get from those who enter your class the first time, or is it just they're, they're just ready to hear? <laughs> well, I've been doing this a long time, so, you know, the reputation's kind of out there. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I want my students to treat each other with respect, and that means also to treat their theological differences with respect. Um, so if a student is convinced that the Bible does not want women to teach and preach, well, you can find verses to support that. And what? Uh, and I don't want somebody to say you're ignorant or you're bigoted. You know, you're just trying to be biblically faithful. And at the same time, uh, to say, well, here are some other verses that you might want to consider. And since it is the case case in both Judaism and Christianity that some verses are more important than others, um, Jesus does have a great commandment of love of God and love of neighbor. And he does say the Torah is summarized by do to others as you would have them do to you. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Um, then you might put some of those more restrictive verses over against those verses about love and walking in your neighbor's shoes. Uh, and, and maybe, maybe you might change your mind. But at the very least, do not demonize somebody who holds a view that's different than yours. Because well, that, that's not helpful. And you were talking about some verses more important than others. Uh, what about the, the 
division between, you know, particularly Paul and what Jesus had to say? I think they're actually pretty close. Um, uh, the whole business that you can find in some popular literature about how Paul invented Christianity. You no, know, I mean, what Paul is doing is, and it's genius, is he's taking a Jewish tradition and marketing it to Gentiles. Uh, that, that's a tough sell. But, you know, in order to do this, he's got to introduce them to the Jewish scripture. So that's what they're all based on. That's why Paul's continuing to quote it. Um, he's quoting the Greek translation, but, you know, one would expect that at the time. Um, he's taking a Jewish messianic idea, and one of the dominant Jewish messianic ideas at the time was that when the messianic age broke through um, or began, that one of the signs would be that the Gentile nations would turn from worshiping their gods to worshiping the God of Israel, which Jews thought was, you know, the one true God. Um, but that message was also, you have to care for your neighbor. Uh, you have to treat other people in your community as if they're your brothers and sisters because you're part of a new people. You're all now descended from Abraham by adoption. You're all relatives. Um, I think that's very close to what Jesus was teaching. And I think Jesus was teaching that the end of the world was around the corner, and so was Paul. Okay. What about uh, some of the other issues? And I know you've addressed these in other uh, interviews that I've read and things. Um, the the approach to hell, I mean, from from your perspective and then from the New Testament perspective, what, what are the differences in the approach to hell? Well, at the time of Jesus, there was a fairly robust idea of heaven and hell. Like people were talking about it. Uh, what happened was the more the church talked about heaven and hell, the book of Revelation was really helpful here. Um, uh, the less the synagogue did. So as church and synagogue began to split, uh, Jews concentrated more on sanctification in this world by following Torah. And Christians concentrated more on, you know, heaven and hell and what happens to you after you die. Um, it, when Jesus talks about, you know, the place of, uh, you know, wailing and gnashing of teeth, it's also, you know, an unquenchable fire. The Greek is asbestos, by the way. Um, it, I don't think unquenchable fire means you just burn burn for all eternity. I think it means you burn up into oblivion. Um, you know, it's not like your body's made of asbestos and you're just there suffering in pain. Um, that comes in much later for the most part. But it seems to become a linchpin for evangelicals, even to this day. I mean, the, the a lot of the larger megachurches are still preaching the heaven and hell thing. Oh, sure. It was also, for, for many years, a linchpin of the Roman Catholic Church. And if you want a really good example of that, uh, plus really fine literature. Look at look at Dante's Inferno, um, which you know tells you here are the people in hell, um, and then there are then there's purgatory, which sort of is, has gone away. Um, I worry about churches. I, I worry about children in churches where they 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 get this idea that if they misstep somehow, that they're going to be damned for all eternity. Um, it's it's it, it's a difficult life for them, and it's sad too because they think about their friends. Uh, um, who are not part of their church, and they don't want their friends to be damned for all eternity either. So God becomes not the loving parent, but the scary as all get out, you know, coming at you with a belt uh, and, and keeping you in line by threat rather than by love. Yeah. I so, th I think you know, that... you, can run, you can run with those verses if you want, or you can take them as a metaphor, or you could take them as, well, this is the way people talked back then, but do we have to believe that today? And what kind of God do we want? Um, I would not want to raise, I mean, I have two children. I, I did not raise them with a sense that if they did something wrong, God was going to zap them. Nor did I raise them with a sense that if they did something wrong, I was going to zap <laughs> them. Um, you know, there's a sense of, of love and responsibility. Um, and there's also a concern for personal choice. 
and the the personification of evil and the, the idea of Satan plays into that as well. Right, but Sa- Satan gets like a, a job upgrade. Because most of the Satan stuff in, in the scriptures of Israel, the church's Old Testament, is the Satan, the accuser, sort of like the prosecuting attorney. Right. Um, he, the, the the eventually gets dropped out, right? And then you get, um, for people on the lectionary, this last week, um, the... Um, uh, the temptation narrative in the Gospel of Luke, where you know Satan tempts Jesus and Satan possesses people, and then you get Satan in the Book of Revelation. So he gets more and more important. Um, wasn't necessary, but it's a nice way of keeping people in line. Um, and and it makes sense to me just in terms of how religion works. I mean, Jews have Torah, so we know what we're supposed to do. We have all these commandments that say do this and don't do that. You know, you'll always have the poor with you, so extend your hand to the poor. You have to take care of them. Um, uh, you know, make sure you keep the Sabbath and give yourself, you know, a, a break. Give yourself some rest. Let your animals rest. Um, so you got negative and positive commandments. Um, don't murder. Don't steal. Well, what happens when you come into this tradition as a Gentile and those commandments are not for you? Because the commandments were given to Jews in part to keep Jews distinct from the rest of the world, separating Israel from the nations. Well, how do you keep people in line if they're not going to be kept in line by law? And one way to do it is to keep them in line by threat. I would much concern to keep them in line by love. It's a matter of where you want to put the emphasis. Right. I, I we're in total agreement there. I, 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 I wish I saw more of that. And the other thing I was going to ask you is the way Jewish leaders are portrayed throughout much of the New Testament is not very flattering. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. So what do we do? Um, all scripture has baggage, and there's no quick fix. I wish there were. You know, like translate Jew as Judean. Well, it's a, a distinction without a difference, and it strips out the connection between Jews in antiquity like Jesus and people like me. Um, you know, change it to leaders, but then, you know, le- in what sense? So you talk about religious leaders, but that, that doesn't work. I mean, the priesthood, the priests run the temple, but they don't tell people how to practice their religion out in Galilee. I mean, they've got no authority to do that. Um, so... It, Education is probably the best way of doing it. Um, Alternative storytelling is also helpful. And so here's my example. Um, Every year we read in the synagogue the book of Exodus, and every year we celebrate the Passover. It's coming up next month, uh, where we talk about how awful the Egyptians were. You know, 400 years of slavery followed by genocide. Not great. So why is it that Jews are not raised to hate Egyptians? Because we should have been under the circumstances. Uh, because we tell a Midrash, a story, it's not in the Bible, it's an early rabbinic story, that says when the children of Israel were fleeing slavery uh, and heading toward freedom, going through the Red Sea, uh, that Pharaoh and his chariots followed them to catch them and to bring them back. And the waters closed over the Egyptian army and over the Egyptian chariots, and they drowned. And at this point, the Midrash says well, the angels were celebrating, uh, you know, the children of Israel are free, the Egyptians are drowning, hooray. Uh, and they go to find God, and, and they find God sitting in a corner, wrapped in a prayer shawl, and weeping. And the angels say, why are you weeping? And God says, my children are dying, and you're singing praises. And he's talking about the Egyptians. And that, that lets you know that everybody is in the image and likeness of God, and God loves everybody. Jews are chosen to follow Torah. Other nations are chosen to, to do other good things. Um, so you try not to malign any other group. And when you have a text that might suggest so, you put in a reading immediately that brings people to consciousness that says, because of these verses, hate has occurred and we need to stop that. Um, if, um, if, if you go to the symphony and you go to hear something like 
Bach's St. John's Passion, which is just magnificent. The Matthew Passion is these two orchestras. It's too expensive to mount. But if you go to hear Bach's St. John's Passion, um, they're usually in the liner notes, something about Bach's Lutheran theology and how Bach portrays the Jews and what we're supposed to do with the, the anti-Jewish interpretation. Well, you can do the same thing with a Christian order of worship. You could do the same thing by changing the lectionary for churches that are on the lectionary. And you just don't read certain verses because not every verse gets read out. Or if you're doing a, a general Bible study in an evangelical non-lectionary church and you're doing the entire Gospel of John, then every week when those Jews show up, and they're going to show up 71 times, you have to make sure that your congregation knows how to react. That's well, hard, but yeah, that's what education is. I like what you said about uh, God's call on the Jewish people and God's call in other places. Uh, there seems to still, though, be this focus, and, and it is a, a focus of portions, at least portions of the New Testament, um, and evangelicals have certainly embraced the idea of getting saved. That's the ultimate end all, is, is getting somebody saved. Um, where did that develop? I mean, how, how did that, did that come out of the tradition somewhere else, or is there something? No, it, it makes perfect sense given what Christianity is. Uh, Jews are not primarily a religion. If you think about a religion as something based on belief, like a theological confession, which is how you can have atheist Jews. Um, Jews are a people, like you know, Germans are a people, or Kenyans are a people, or Mexicans are a people, or Americans are a people. You can convert in, um, but we're a people um, defined by who your parents are. Um, so you know, if your parents are German, you're a German. Even if you live in America, there's like a Germany thing to you, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, when the when the followers of Jesus began to develop and went out to the Gentile world. Um, they were not developing themselves as a new people at that point. They, 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 you know, the Gentiles remained Gentiles. They just turned from their pagan gods, and the Jews remained Jews. They just had an add-on, which was the G which was the Jesus tradition. So when Paul in Philippians trots out his credentials, you know, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, he's not dismissing any of that. Uh, he's he's just saying, and now I've got Jesus, so I'm an even better, you know, member of the tribe of Benjamin, and an even better Jew, and so on. Um, so you get in by belief. Well, why would you believe? And that's where the idea of salvation comes in. Right? Um, what am I going to believe in Jesus for? What does he do for me? Why do I need this belief? And hence the concern for getting saved, because Christianity is a belief-based religion rather than an ethnic-based religion. Outside of that understanding, what what is your understanding of the importance of Jesus? It depends upon who you ask. I mean, I'm an historian. Right. Um, so, I'm, I'm asking you. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm interested in um, why did people follow him in the first place? And like, I think he was a healer. That's how you get crowds. Because if you get up on a stoop and say, you know, with sower one out to sow, there are not a whole lot of people are going to come listen to you. Uh, but if you heal people, if you exercise demons, people will listen to you. Um, I think he was convinced that the Messianic age was about to break in and that he was he was part of that process. Uh, and that his job was to prepare people, which meant fellow Jews, uh, for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. You know, so the, the, the final, the general resurrection of the dead is about to happen. The final judgment is about to happen. <laughs> you better get your life in order. Um, and in his teaching, in his moral teaching, he's saying, well, you know, let, let's imagine that we've got one foot in there already. In his table fellowship with people, because he eats his way through the Gospels. Um, that's enacting what Jews would have thought of as the Messianic banquet. So you're kind of sitting at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you're breaking bread with, with people who might have been enemies. Um, and, and you live together, and you have enough food, and people share. Um, 
I'm interested in how this message took off in the Gentile world, where in the Gentile world, by which I mean the pagan world, one of the hottest commodities in the religious marketplace was eternal life, um, which you could get by joining like a mystery cult, but you had to pay money for it. And and the followers of Jesus said, we can give you eternal life for free. And while you're alive, we'll take care of you. If you're hungry, we'll feed you. If you're thirsty, we'll give you something to drink. If you're in prison, we will come visit you. I'm running Matthew 25 here. But that's what the early followers of Jesus did. And pagans said, oh, I now have a new family. I now have eternal life. I now have people who will treat me not as a slave, even if I am a slave, uh, but will treat me as a brother or a sister. Um, and that was compelling to pagans. Well, and like you said, that that passage in, in Matthew 25 is at least, uh, based on my understanding, the clearest demarcation of who Jesus said were his followers, those list of things there you were, were talking about. Right, and that would have been basically part of Jewish morality, and you can see that Jewish morality in Deuteronomy, you can see it throughout the prophets, you can see it in the wisdom literature, and you can see it in rabbinic literature as well. What about, uh, how do you teach on the, the gender roles as laid out in the New Testament? Because there's some sort of dicey stuff in there. Even, I mean, I know in historic context, maybe, but it, it, today that certainly is being used as a hammer. Sure. Um, so my friend Mark Brettler, with whom I co-edited the Jewish Annotated New Testament and co-wrote the Bible with and without Jesus, uses this metaphor of something that's in 50-point font and something that's in 5-point font. Um, so, you know, again, it's it's what do you emphasize as the touchstone and what do you think is, is uh, kind of minor or what's good for all times and places and what's restricted to one particular place at one particular time. So if Paul says in 1 Corinthians that women should not teach or have authority, then you have to wonder, is that good for all time or is that are we're reading somebody else's mail, right? You know, we don't live in Corinth. Does that hold for us? At the same time, we know that Paul accords uh, to a woman named Junia, he accords her the title Apostle, that's Romans 16. Uh, to a woman named Phoebe, he accords the title Deacon, actually in the masculine form, Diaconos, also in Romans 16. We know that women are prophesying in Corinth, because Paul tells them when you do it, just put a covering on your head because of the angels. Um, so what's going on? Um, when First Timothy, in chapter 2, uh, suggest that women should have no authority uh, because of what Eve did. Well, then, then we got to go back and figure. Well, you know, was there actually an Adam and Eve, and, and is that supposed to be science rather than than story? First um, uh, Timothy says that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Well, you know, how do you know? Uh, because Paul says through one man, Romans five comes sin and death. That's Adam. So he was not deceived, and he allowed all that to happen. How does that work? Um, so acknowledge the difficult points there, but say, how are you going to deal with it? And I guess the easiest example is to look at what are called the household codes, house tafel in Greek, um, which you can see in Ephesians and in First Timothy and First Peter and in other places, where it's, you know, wives be obedient to your husbands and children be obedient to your parents and slaves be obedient to your masters. And then say, well, are we still saying slaves be obedient to your masters? The answer is no. Well, then why would we still be saying wives be obedient to your husbands? It's, it's exactly the same model. Right? Um, and, yeah. And it's, it's, it's been sort of um, um, moved on into the sexual politics as well. I mean, they, they find ways to exclude people based on sexual politics. Sure. 
because back then they had a different view of same-sex relations than we have today, because first of all, who's in power and who's writing? Second, um, if you want to control people, controlling their sexuality and controlling the women um, who are more physically weak generally, um, it's it's the easiest way of maintaining dominance. Um, But then you look at psychology um, and you look at good people who have been harmed because of unfortunate teaching. Um, and the various alternatives don't work. So although history, I mean, if you read the Bible and you can conclude that the Bible is basically promoting married heterosexual relations and anything that falls out of that is problematic, you know, that's a fair reading of the text. Uh, But if you look over time, then you see changes. And what I do, and so I'm a member of an Orthodox synagogue and Orthodoxy is not real happy about same-sex relations. So I say to my rabbi, well, you know, so what do you want me to tell gay Jews in the synagogue? Conservative and Reformed Judaism, it's all egalitarian, it's all sexually open, so that's not a problem. I said, do you want me to tell them to be celibate? Well, that that would be stunting their emotional growth. And by the way, the first time God says something is not good is God says it's not good for the human being to be alone. So why would I condemn a gay person to a life of singleness and celibacy if God says it's not good? Right. You put one text up against another. Um, do you want me to send the person to what's called reparation therapy, which the association, American uh, Psychi- 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 Psychiatry Psychiatric Association says is, is abusive? Well, that doesn't work. It's got a 98% recidivism rate. Um, and if the rabbi were to say, well, it's 2%, it might work. I said, fine, do you want your daughter married to a graduate of that program? In which case he probably says no. Um, the Christian idea of pray the gay away doesn't work, which is how you wind up with all these gay Christians who have tried and it doesn't work. And to compare same-sex attraction to something like alcoholism or drug addiction or pornography addiction, I don't think is fair either because same-sex attraction can lead to same-sex marriage, can lead to love and the starting of a family. And alcoholism and drug addiction do not do that. So it's an unfair comparison. You know, what do you want these people to do that shows some sort of pastoral care And I think at that point, for me, the wiser move is to say the Bible may say something, but if you just base what you think on the Bible and nothing else, if you're a Christian, you're shutting off the Holy Spirit, who is supposedly continuing to teach. You're forcing everybody to play kind of first century Bible land, and you're worshiping the Bible rather than that to which the Bible points. And that's called bibliolatry, by the way. Yeah, that's pretty prevalent. That's a prevalent... uh, On the other hand... Do not demonize people who hold such views, because once you turn somebody into a demon, then you're not showing love of neighbor. So, you know, engage the conversation as much as you can and then try to find a safe space and try to do the best you can uh, to counsel people who have been harmed by particular biblical interpretations. The reason I'm in biblical studies in the first place is not only because it became (laughs) I became very well aware very early on. Uh, how the Bible had been de- had been used to demonize Jews, but I was also aware of how the biblical tradition had harmed women, and had you know, and and being a Jew and a woman, I'm concerned about this. Um, was used against immigration, was used against people on the GLBTQI plus spectrum, uh, was used against people who were sick because there's a strong, particularly in the New Testament, a strong connection between uh, sickness and sin. You know, you must have done something wrong, and that's why you have cancer. Mm -hmm. Or uh, the reason you can't have a baby is because you sinned, which the Bible specifically says is not the case. Um, 
So how does the Bible get weaponized, and what can we do to defuse the weapon so that Bible, the Bible can be, as the old saying goes, a rock on which you stand rather than a rock thrown to do damage? And how do you proclaim a God of love rather than a God of hate? That's what I try to do, and sometimes it's not easy. Uh, what about the apocalyptic scriptures in the New Testament? How, how do you approach those in the classroom? Just what, you know, just in general. I know that's, that's a, a very broad question, but... Sure. Uh, well, my job in the classroom um, it has several factors. One, um, I, to try to explain how this stuff got written in the first place uh, and how its initial audiences would have received it. So it's very difficult to tell what an author's intent is. Right? You know, I, I'm continually having conversations with the evangelist Matthew, like, did you intend this? To which Matthew responds something like, I can see where you get it. So to try to imagine how this was interpreted at the time, which means knowing something about other apocalyptic literature at the time and how people have interpreted it. But then also to go through what's called reception history. Um, so how was it looked at by the early church? How was it looked at by the reformers? Um, and then what do you do with it today should you decide to preach it? Um, uh, with the apocalypse, you can also look at how it's been used in art. Uh, because uh, particularly from the illustrations in Luther's Bible, uh, the artistic illustrations of Revelation have really taken quite a cultural hold. And that's why we talk about, you know, the pale rider and the beast whose number is 666 and the heavenly Jerusalem and the slain lamb. Right. So what do we do with these images? Um, it's a hateful book. It's a terribly hateful book, on the other hand. And there's usually an on the other hand. Uh, people who are suffering have often turned to the apocalypse because it gives them the psychological satisfaction of seeing the people who are oppressing them, imaged here as, as, as pagan Rome, as being punished by God. They don't do it. So it does. It should not lead to violence, but it's a sense that somehow God will take care of all of this. Ideally, after you read that, then you step back, as you would step back from some of the passages in Joshua or Judges or some of the, the Psalms with more difficult images, and say, I really don't think that. And I really don't want that. And I'm glad I have a text that calls me to account, to recognize how horrible people can be to each other and what horrible ideas we can have. And then you go to those 50-point font verses and say, but I'm not going to go there. So the text, at least for me and ideally for my students, says, here's what human beings are capable of in terms of marvelous compassion and love, miraculous compassion and love. And here's how capable they are of evil and of sin and of hatred. So you know how bad it can be. And then your job is to fight against it with all the love you can throw at it. You mentioned using one text with another. Uh, is biblical illiteracy a problem that people are unable to do that because they... they... <laughs> yeah, like the Bible is the most cited unread book. Sure. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, you pull verses out of context. They believe um, every word of it that they've read. and uh... Yeah, and, and as if, you know, I, but, but, so I, I, I have had students who have identified as literalists, and I said, you're not a literalist. How do you know that? You know, well, because if the Psalms talk about the hills leaping for joy, they're not leaping, you know. <laughs> the Rockies right. aren't going anywhere. Um, you know, that's a metaphor. Clearly, when Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. I don't think he meant that literally, because otherwise there'd be a bunch of Christians walking around with eye patches. Um, so you have to determine what's metaphor and what's literal and what's designed to motivate you and what you're actually supposed to do um, and what's for a particular person at one particular time, like sell all you have and give to the poor. That, that's for one particular person at one particular time. It's not for Mary and Martha. He's not saying, you know, sell your house. Um, that requires interpretation. So how do you interpret this material? 
Um, and even if you figure out that Jesus said something or did something, well, what does that mean to you? And that's why we have different forms of biblical interpretation. And if we didn't, all the fundamentalists would agree that here's the sermon you give, at the same sermon would be given every Sunday. And they don't, which means the Bible is still speaking, because if it doesn't have anything to say today, then it's a dead book. Well, and I think though, to 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 do that, you have to read it. And I think that's still, like you said, it's uh, people quote things and go and, and and sort of find passages here and there. But when you look at those studies that come out, Barn and other places, who has actually read scriptures all the way, you know, Old and New Testament, it's it's a fairly small percentage. Right, and most of them have not read it in the original. Right? Um, the fact is, we don't have the original. We've got copies right. of copies of copies of copies. Uh, but you can get a little bit closer if you can actually read Hebrew, and then you can see the the depth that's there uh, that gets stripped out, because Hebrew is a very, very rich language, but it gets stripped out when you translate it into English. Right. Um, right. Or how the Greek is used when the translation takes the same word but translates it differently, even in the same book. So you miss the echoes. Yeah, and even, I know, I can I can attest that, you know, a couple of years of Hebrew and Greek in seminary just gives you enough to make you dangerous. You do pick up some of the echoes, but you also, <laughs> you're really not far enough along to... Well, whenever to, I write, um, I, I, I generally use the NRSV as, as the base text, because that's what most liberal churches are using. Um, but I will on occasion cite the King James, and then I'll go say, but here's, here are the nuances of the Hebrew. And here are the nuances of the Greek. And if you actually translated this Greek phrase literally, you get something that's quite different than what you get in the various translations. Um, so to give a sense of the depth of the original text. Um, and also, when you read in the kind of awkward, like wooden translations from the Hebrew and the Greek, you get a sense that you are reading a, a text written in a foreign language and written a very, very long time ago. Well, culturally, the evangelical right has been shouting about the Judeo-Christian tradition for at least four or five decades. Um, are they missing anything from the Judeo part of that mantra? Yeah, I'm not real happy with the term. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't think you would yeah. be. Because what, what it generally means is Old Testament plus Christianity. Um, so, you know, Judeo becomes somehow the modifier. Um, as if the Judeo is not super important, um, and and basically what it means is not Muslim, not Hindu. Mm -hmm. um, so I I don't I don't mind talking about the Jewish and Christian traditions, but these traditions are very different. You know, the Roman Catholic Church is not the rabbinic system, which is what we had up until the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther is not my synagogue, for example. Um, we also, but we we tend to group things. So today it's very popular to talk about the Abrahamic faiths. So we have uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam because we all look at Abraham as the, the founder of somehow of our tradition. But the stories of Abraham that are told in the synagogue are very different than the stories of Abraham told in the church. In fact, the synagogue and the mosque are pretty close here. Um, so these terms that are designed to bring us together actually mask the differences. Um, they can be helpful at first if you want to begin a conversation, you talk about what you have in common. But by alighting the differences, uh, what typically happens is Christianity takes over because it's the majority culture. And the very strong differences that Judaism and Islam have um, become marginalized or ignored um, or looked at as, as somehow negative or not quite with the program. And that's the problem with focusing only on the commonalities and not celebrating the differences as well. Yeah, that's that's a challenge. Uh, I agree with you. The, the commonalities, though, I don't think are celebrated as often as as, uh, as most people would think anyway, particularly when you're talking about all faith traditions. Uh, you drop in, and I've mentioned this in other podcasts, that if you drop in 
the passage on the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, uh, you drop those things into any culture, you're pretty much going to come out with, yeah, we're, we're with you on that. Um, but uh, is there, um, have you witnessed relations between Jews and Christians improving or declining over the past decade? Depends upon where you go and who you ask. Okay. What about where you are? Where I am? Um, well, you know, <laughs> the past two years have been COVID. Um, okay, uh, pre-COVID. You know, here in Nashville, things are actually very, very good. Um, I am in, before COVID, I was in local churches every Wednesday and every Sunday. Um, I'm back on the road now. I was in a wonderful St. Luke's Methodist Church in Houston this past weekend. They were fabulous people. Um, uh, there's still a lot of ignorance, and I think a lot of the, the stuff that eventually manifests in hate is based in ignorance, because people simply do not know. Um, even for some of my students at Vanderbilt, I was the, I'm the first Jew they've ever met in person. Kind of interesting. Um, hmm. uh, people in my synagogue don't know that because it's an Orthodox synagogue. I mean, they know Christians, but they don't talk with Christians about Christianity because they just don't want to go there. Uh, but then you have uh, you have a strong anti-Jewish undertone to a great a great deal of the current white nationalism and QAnon and such. Um, you get a lot of Jewish dog whistles, you know, people talking about globalism, I guess it's just code word for Jews. Um, George Soros, the philanthropist, who I think has done some wonderful things. As you know, he's a Jew who's trying to, you know, force immigration mm -hmm. uh, to um, to make us um, uh, less of an American people and more of a quote-unquote nation of immigrants. Um, that's why in Charlotte's, Charlottesville, the... Uh, the marchers were claiming Jews will not replace us. So that they're like a replacement theory. So, yeah, there's a bunch of anti-Jewish stuff out there, and it's it, it's happening every single day. Um, and the Jewish media is very well aware of this. So it's like, you know, in the same way there are Catholic magazines and Lutheran magazines. Well, there are, you know, Jewish online magazines uh, or the Anti-Defamation League. So every morning I read about, you know, yet another hateful thing that gets done. Sometimes it's in ignorance, and sometimes it's absolutely deliberate. And sometimes it comes from Islamicists, and sometimes it comes from fundamentalist Christians, and sometimes it comes from, bless their hearts, liberal Christians who don't realize how offensive what they've just said is. And that's the problem of just not having ears to hear. Can you give me an example of that? Well, a liberal Christian just bless their heart saying something they think they're trying to be? Sure. Um, for those churches that want to make Jesus the social justice warrior, well, you know, the Jews treat the Jews were like the Taliban, and Jesus comes in and invents feminism. Um, uh, that Jews believe that uh, if you were rich, you were uh, righteous, and if you were poor, you were sinful. Because to be sinful is to be to be poor is to be sinful, and Jesus invents social justice, which is so extraordinarily wrong. Um, that Jews thought that all you had to do was offer a sacrifice in the temple and you didn't have to behave well and Jesus invents the idea of a moral conscience. Nonsense. Um, so this idea of using Judaism as the negative foil. Um, it's the standard explanation of the parable of the Good Samaritan is the reason that the priests and Levite walk by the guy in the ditch is because of Jewish purity laws. So they're avoiding corpse contamination, which is so totally wrong, nine ways to Sunday. Uh, but since Christians who do not understand how purity functions and do not understand that saving a life overcomes all purity concerns, of course you save a life. Um, of course you attend to a victim. Um, simply make Judaism look bad in order to make Jesus' story look good. What is your take on the American political Zionist, who, who generally are some of the same evangelical Christians who wouldn't really welcome Jewish people into their fellowship? 
Oh, I, I think most Christian Zionists probably would. I mean, they have a strong love of Israel. And Christian Zionists are not all of the same, they're not all cut from the same cloth either. Uh, there are some Christian Zionists who are following off of um, Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. They're America firsters. You know, God blesses right. those who, who bless the children of Abraham. So it's, it's good for the United States. Uh, there are some who look at Israel as a democracy and the only Jewish state within a broader um, immediate world, which doesn't want them there and wants to get rid of them. Uh, there are some who, um, although most of them are, have, have passed on by now, uh, who were soldiers in World War II and saw what happened to the Jews in Nazi-occupied territory and said, yeah, there has to be a place for them to go for safety. Um, there were a lot of Christian Zionists who were actually also in favor of a Palestinian state. So when you start talking about Christian Zionism, you have to figure out what are the borders of Israel, you know, and, and people will debate that because even if you look at the Bible, the borders of Israel change. Right. Well, uh, I've, I've covered politics, and I have to say, though, that the first group we were talking about, though, uh, is, is more prevalent than the the other groups. The other groups are much smaller. The America Firsters? Yeah. yeah the other groups, are, but you know, I've talked to a lot of such Christian Zionist groups about the importance of, of Palestinians being governed by their own government, which is what they want. Um, and then how do you carve out a Palestinian state given Israeli settlement expansion, which is making an autonomous state almost impossible at this point? Um, and what do you do with those uh, members of the Palestinian population who believe that the state of Israel should not exist at all? And the chant is from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which means there is no state of Israel. And then where do you want the Jews there to go? Right. So, it, you know, there's no easy solution to this. And if there were, we, we would have done it. Right. Uh, and it requires an enormous amount of courage uh, on the part of everybody who's over there. And I'm not seeing that courage. What would be some helpful things or helpful approaches to build a better understanding between Christian communities and Jewish communities or even interfaith gatherings? Yeah. Well, if you take the idea that all politics is local, you do it locally. Now, granted, not every city has a Jewish population. Not every city has a Jew. Uh, but for those that do, it's, it, you know, joint Bible studies are really helpful. Um, it, in Nashville, uh, there, are Bible, there are Torah studies in every synagogue, and there are Christians who come to those Torah studies. Uh, occasionally, Jews will go to a Christian Bible study. And when I do Bible studies in Nashville, lots of people come out. Um, so, uh, you know, these Bible studies that say we're going to look at the same text and the point is not to, you know, sing kumbaya at the end. Uh, but the point is to share our different readings, and our different understandings of the same text. How do we do that? Um, I like the idea of joint scholar and residence programs, and I do a lot of these. And now that, you know, COVID restrictions are, are easing up, I, mean, I, I shall be doing more um, where you do uh, a program Friday night in a synagogue, Saturday morning in a synagogue. Saturday afternoon somewhere, and then everybody goes over to the church on Sunday morning so that Jews can experience Christian worship and Christians can experience Jewish worship. And you figure out, you know, what you can say in common, at what point you remain silent and, and, and sit or stand respectfully. So you learn more about each other and you begin to ask questions. Do you still have folks attempting to get you saved? All the time. And, and that's fine because they're not do well. I mean, some of them are doing it just because it's a challenge. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, the majority of people who do this are doing it out of love, right? And, and, you know, and they're really concerned about me, um, and I appreciate that. So I will let them have their peace. 
Um, the reason Mark Brettler and I wrote the Bible with and without Jesus is because generally when they do this, they say, well, you know, if you just looked at Isaiah or if you just looked at Psalm 22. Yeah. Um, so now I can hand them this book or to, since I don't have any extra copies because I've given all of mine away. You know, go to Amazon, buy, buy the Bible with and without Jesus, which will tell you for every single Bible passage, you will throw at me. Jews have an alternative reading. You might want to think about that. Um, and, and to let them know that um, if you want to proclaim Christ as Lord, which is fine, um, that that's not a matter of logic. So you can't proof text somebody into it because I can find an alternative reading for every text you're going to give me. Um, and if you tell me Jesus did miracles, I say, that's great. But so did Elijah and so did Elisha and so did Muhammad. So that doesn't get me anywhere either. Moses. Um, <laughs> and Moses. I mean, yeah. And, and there are a bunch of rabbis that do right. this. Um, so religion is not a matter of logic. You can't give me a list of here's why you believe and I should believe you. Because religion is not a matter of logic. It's not like Sudoku, right? That's logical. Um, religion is like love. And you love because you love, because you feel it in your heart, not because you've got it in your head. Um, and my love is, is completely um, given over to my own Jewish tradition. I don't feel anything that's missing that, that Jesus is going to come in and fill. Um, so you love Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's fine. Um, I'm completely contented in my own setting. Um, I will recognize with you that both Judaism and Christianity are unfinished products because Christianity is waiting for Jesus to come back and Judaism is waiting for the Messiah to come. So while we wait, rather than bang on about who's right and who's wrong, why don't we figure out how we work together? Because we're still under the same kind of general commandments of love of God and love of neighbor. How do we do that? Um, and leave that salvation stuff soteriological, eschatological, whatever fancy term you want to use. Leave all that salvation stuff to God. I'm not worried. Um, and when Christians speak to me about their belief, which is fine, right? I'm happy if they want to share that with me. I am less concerned ultimately in what people believe than in what they do. Um, the Gospels are clear. You know people by their fruits. If their fruits are only, I'm, I'm going to evangelize you and I'm going to treat you like a demon if you don't believe in me, then I, I, that strikes me as a kind of dead tree. What, what are you doing to manifest that love of God? Yeah, that's that's powerful, what they did and didn't do. Uh, you're, you're, you've written so many books, and like I said, I've read pieces of several of them. Um, for, and I will say, I, I, for folks who are wondering, um, I find them both accessible and scholarly, so I'd recommend it. What, what, uh, where would you suggest they start if they wanted to start with one of your books? Depends upon what they're interested in. Um, if they're interested in parables, they can read short stories by Jesus. Uh, if they're interested, because this is now coming up toward Easter, so we are in the uh, um, ecclesial season of Lent, um, I just published a book called Witness at the Cross, um, which... Uh, it attempts to to look at what's happening through the eyes of the people who the gospel writers set at the scene, like Simon of Cyrene, who carries Jesus the crossbeam uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the women from Galilee who were there, uh, Jesus' mother and the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John, the two thieves on, or bandits uh, who die on side of Jesus, God and nature who were there, um, to try to get a different sense of a story that's very, very familiar and kind of defamiliarize familiarize it. And then look at it and look at it also in a way that recognizes the role of women in these stories and also uh, strips out the anti-Jewish interpretations that have so often plagued those stories as well. Um, if you're interested in how Jews and Christians read the Bible differently, then look at the Bible with and without Jesus. Um, if you're interested in a kind of general study of Jesus within his Jewish context, look at Misunderstood Jew. 
Um, if you want something on Christmas, you can look at a book called Light of the World. And if you want something on the Sermon on the Mount, you can look at a book called The Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> Uh, and if you want children's books, you can read the children's books. And if you don't want your kids being messed up by bad church teaching, uh, then you can read the books that I co-authored with Sandy Eisenberg Sasso, who is a, a, a prize-winning children's book author, because I don't know how to write for kids, but she does, um, on the various parables. That was absolutely no help at all. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I favorite but I, somewhere to start. You know, but I understand what you're saying. I, mean, I, I was just trying to, to play people. I'm a one-shot wonder. I still have things to say. Uh, okay. Are, are you working on another book now? And also, all these are available on Amazon, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I just turned in. I'm waiting to get the, the, the proofs back from the editor. I just turned in from Abingdon uh, a Bible study on the miracles of Jesus, which I had great fun writing because I really like miracle stories. Um, I'll be turning to a commentary on the Gospel of Mark, and I've still got a big Jesus book uh, due to Harper. Um, I had actually turned this book in two and a half years ago, and the editor said, this is not your best, I think you can do better, and he was probably right. And what I'm trying to do in this book, and this is why I'm so struggling with it, because it's not quite right yet. Um, I don't want to say, you know, what would Jesus do? Because I think that's a silly question. You know, Jesus doesn't live in, in the 21st century. Right. Um, Jesus doesn't know about uh, science the way we know about science, and Jesus doesn't know about diversity that we know about. But what do the gospel stories tell us that can help us think through uh, economic concerns or gender and sexuality concerns or medical concerns or political concerns? So I'm using the gospel stories as a way of, of trying to ask new questions or shed a different light on contemporary discourse. Uh, not by forcing God down somebody's throat, because again, belief is a matter of, of, of belief, right? But by looking at stuff that we all have to deal with and saying, maybe the gospel stories are something we might want to consider. Are there other books that um, you would... Uh, is that you or me? I don't know. There's a... Uh, it seems like a... Let that, let that, somebody's calling Skype and I don't put this Skype number out, so it must be a spam call. Give me one second for this to die down. And Okay. Um, Thank you. We can edit that out. Yeah, that was bizarre. Uh, are there any other books that uh, either Christians or Jews might find helpful in understanding that you would recommend, that, that you recommend to your students or other things that you didn't write? Um, I would recommend anything written by my um, uh, Jewish annotated co-editor and Bible with and without Jesus co-author, Mark Brettler. Um, he wrote a book. It's called something like The Bible and the Believer. So, you know, how do you approach this text uh, if you want to do history, but you also want to take God seriously? I think that's extremely helpful. Um, for people who want to dig deep and, and have patience and want to read a good academic book, um, and this is mine, but it's, a, it's just a really good book. I co-edited it, so I wrote one article and I wrote the introduction. Um, it's called The Pharisees, and it was it's a huge collection of essays that came out from Erdman's Press, um, Christian Press, uh, this past November, based on a conference that was held in Rome in 2019. Uh, and it, it's basically cutting edge, here's what we know about the Pharisees. Which is actually kind of cool when you think Sounds about it. Sounds cool. It is cool. I'm very happy. I'm very happy with this book. Um, uh, if you want to read something more on the popular level, um, the popular authors who I like, um, I like Diana Butler Bass has a book out on Jesus. It's just gone into paperback. I right. think it's a fine book. I've had her on um, the podcast. Yeah, she's really, really good. I, and I think she writes really, really well. Yep. Um, I really like Barbara Brown Taylor. Um, who she's an Episcopal priest, she, but she writes kind of sermony stuff, but not goofy. Um, and I think she's got a. I mean, you're talking before about spiritual. I think she's got a real strong spiritual sense. Um, 
if you want something from that's smart and and firmly in the evangelical camp, Scott McKnight does very very good work. Peter Enns E N N S yep. does very very good work. Had Peter on here, yeah. Um, so I'm getting to your friends. Um, yeah. I like Bart Aaron's work. I think he writes breezily and he's fun. Um, I like the work of Candida Moss, M-O-S-S, uh, who is in Birmingham in the UK. Uh, Paula Fredrickson, I think, is brilliant. So, I mean, there are a lot of really right. smart people out there, and I like what they write. Warms my heart to talk to a reader. <laughs> it always does. Uh, the last well, thing, and I asked this... <sighs> On occasion, what was the last thing you read, saw, or heard that made you laugh out loud? That's an interesting question. Um, the last thing I saw, read, or heard that made me laugh out loud was about... <laughs> this is going to sound so banal. Uh, it was about 6 o'clock this morning, um, and I woke up and my dog was lying on her back, fast asleep on my bed, and her tail was wagging, and I burst out laughing. <laughs> Because <laughs> it was just so cute, with the little paws up in the air and this little labradoodle face. Yeah, I laughed at my dog. That's she woke cool. up and then laughed with me. <laughs> then I had to take her out. <laughs> That's the way it should work. Hey, listen, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate you taking time out. Happy to do this. And it's always fun to talk to somebody who has such a positive, passionate energy about what they do. And appreciate all she had to say there. Don't forget to join me next week when my guest is Neil Allen, and we'll talk about his book, Shapes of Truth. And until then, get out and do something to make life better in this world. Ooh, in these realms of love, ooh, by something blind, ooh, by avalanche, ooh, by powder, ooh, for his greed, ooh, for his hunger. Shall I say it's calling me? Who by brave ascent, who by accident, who in solitude, who in this mirror, who by his latest command, who by his own hand, who chains, who in power, and who shall I say is calling